This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Again, I just want to say hi and thank you so much to Hartford Street for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, thank you to Greg, my Zen teacher, uh, to the youth activists that are on this call, to my fellow chaplains at MedStar Washington Hospital Center that are here today, and to my friends and my family. I couldn't, um, I couldn't have grown or be here today without all of all of you, all of the wisdom you've given me and shared with me, and all of the, all of your support. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, so my talk today is about Buddhism and gun violence. This month, I started working as an interfaith chaplain at MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, DC. In 2020, almost 200 people died of gun violence related deaths in Washington, DC. Gun violence is part of a vicious cycle of race and inequity in the United States that reflects existing social inequities and that makes it even more challenging for young black people, especially young black men, to escape poverty and violence. This past Saturday, I sat with a man who was shot in the left arm. He was remarkably calm and I I asked him to tell me a bit about how he was doing. He shared that this was the eighth gunshot wound he's experienced. He told me that he usually tries not to break down or cry because he's the patriarch of his family and somebody needs to stay strong. He was sitting in his car when he got shot. On Wednesday, I sat with a mother who was taking her 20-year-old daughter off of life support. Her daughter was shot in the parking lot after seeing a movie with her boyfriend. On Thursday, I sat with a young woman who didn't have a family. I don't know why she was shot, but she was completely intubated and was not going to make it. She was 19 years old. That same day, I visited with a man who lost his left foot after being shot during a robbery. On Friday, I sat for an hour with a man who almost suffered a heart attack because his brother and his cousin were shot and he didn't know how he was gonna tell his mother. And that was just this week. None of this makes any sense. None of this is right. None of these mothers or fathers should have to bury their own children. And yet, 
This is what's happening in our country, in our cities, in our communities, every single day. As a white woman, I was shielded from this for most of my life. I was shielded from this until six weeks ago when I started my summer internship as a chaplain at a level one trauma center in a major metropolitan area. I knew gun violence was a problem in the United States, but I didn't know how many young teenagers, young black teenagers were dying every single day, even in just one ICU. I didn't know what it was like to lose a friend, to lose multiple friends, to lose a child, a mother, a father, a cousin, to gun violence. I thought about it every couple of weeks when on the news I heard about a mass shooting. But I didn't think about it every time my father or my mother or my friends or myself went to go see a movie or went out for a drink at night at a bar. And I'm starting to realize how naive I was and still am in so many ways. The Buddha advised that there are five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. In the Pali Canon, the Buddha is asking us to contemplate suffering, illness and death as an essential part of our Buddhist practice. And he provides us with the five remembrances with which to do so. These remembrances are as follows. One, I am sure to become old, I cannot avoid aging. Two, I am sure to become ill, I cannot avoid illness. Three, I am sure to die, I cannot avoid death. Four, I must be separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. Five, I am the owner of my actions, heir of my actions. Action are the womb from which I have sprung. Actions are my relations. Actions are my protection. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, of these, I shall become the heir. 
I've been thinking about this text quite a bit. Thinking about the spiritual value in all of this suffering I'm witnessing. I may be growing as a person from my experiences in proximity to so much pain and loss. I definitely hug my mom more, tell my family that I love them and appreciate the insignificance of some of my own troubles in the scheme of things. I've grown closer to the divine nature in all of us that is capable of holding all of this pain. I have seen emptiness at work in the relationships I've built with those dying or suffering from the impact of gun violence as their lives slip through their loved one's hands into some other unknowable vastness. But at the same time, I absolutely know that there is no value in this suffering. There is nothing precious about this pain. This is not something that anyone should ask for or want for themselves or anyone else. So what did Buddha mean when he asked us to get closer to suffering? Was Buddha trying to valorize suffering? Is the idea here that gunshot wound victims are somehow given a closer bird's eye view of enlightenment, of ego death? That might be true. That might be true. And at the same time, when I think about the five-year-old boy who said goodbye to his father yesterday, I question how true that is. I question how much he's going to walk away from this with a sense of egolessness or perhaps more so with a sense of powerlessness. Is powerlessness the same thing as egolessness? Is the suffering that Buddha asked us to contemplate our gunshot wounds, gun violence. Is that suffering? Is that what the Buddha meant? I don't know. I really don't. I know I feel a sense of deep sadness. And I know that there is no place in my heart that feels like what happened to any of these individuals was a good spiritual lesson. I do think that as a white woman 
coming closer to this pain has been a good spiritual lesson for me. A lesson about the things I take for granted. But I definitely don't need that lesson at such a cost. I would never ask a five-year-old to lose his father so that I can learn a bit more about pain and impermanence. So I guess my point here is just an encouragement to dig a little bit deeper into the mystery. The mystery of suffering, the mystery of good versus bad, the mystery of spiritual growth. And as we're digging to ask questions about how our own experience relates to the experience of others. Countless times as a Buddhist interacting in interfaith circles, I get asked, oh, the Buddhists, they, they don't have any problems, right? They're peaceful people. They're not like the Christians. I usually laugh when I hear this and I try to explain that this is absolutely not the case. Buddhists have as many struggles as any other religious denomination. And it's incredibly important that each of us who embody this tradition recognize our own imperfections in areas of growth. And also recognize the ways in which our tradition makes it easy for us to hide behind a facade of peacefulness a facade of equanimity, a facade of valorizing suffering. I don't think that's what Buddha intended. And I don't think that's what any of us as Buddhists intend in our hearts. But I do know that it happens that too often we can brush off suffering as just a necessary growth edge on our path to enlightenment without taking into consideration the different ways in which suffering is doled out in our world, the injustice that is wrapped up in suffering. The negative impact that trauma has on an individual does not lead them to spiritual enlightenment. Instead, it leads to post-traumatic stress disorder, decreased cognitive functioning, anxiety, desolation, and despair. It's easy to meditate in the morning and wonder why people around that in the afternoon that you're interacting with 
are, are so easily agitated. Why don't they just chill out, take a deep breath? Taking a deep breath isn't really an answer to a mother who's burying her baby girl or to a son who has to break the news to his mother that her baby boy just died. All I can say about this is that it is part of the mystery that Buddhism is constantly pointing us towards. We can't lean on anything. Nothing our rational brains come up with has the definitive solution to life's problem, even if it sounds great. As nice as a deep breath or a silver lining on our suffering sounds, sometimes there really are no silver linings. So again, today's talk is just an encouragement to enter a little bit more deeply into some of these teachings about suffering, about equanimity, about death, about illness, and about pain. If there's one thing that we've all learned from our Buddhist practice, it's that nothing should be taken at face value. And so I want to encourage all of us to think about this sutra and about all the various Buddhist teachings that relate to suffering at more than just face value. If we can, I encourage us to build relationships with another, one another and expand our understanding of suffering beyond our own experience. To lean in to our emphasis on oneness, to come closer to suffering of others and to break down some of our assumptions of what good spiritual practice looks like. Thank you all and God bless. Absolutely. I'm trying to keep an eye out, but I feel like I see somebody's screen, so if somebody can just wave, 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 wave your hand until until Kim calls your name. I think I see Reverend Neil. I I I think I heard you invite me to say something, Kato San. Of course. Ah, okay. Um, thank you so much, uh, Kim San. That was a bracing talk. Um, it it seems to me that in the uh, oldest uh, stratum of teachings we have from Buddhism, there's a relentless emphasis on counteracting the uh, mistaken and intense investment sentient beings have in a distorted view of reality. Uh, summed up in, in the list of wrong views, namely seeing uh, something permanent in what is impermanent and so forth. So from that point of view, would, would you have anything to help us reflect on? In other words, the way we see things is totally screwed up, totally wrong. And Buddha's emphasis on 
look at old age, look at sickness, look at, at death, and realize that is always present in your experience. Uh, this is very strong medicine, but I, I just wonder how it looks to you from your place. Right. Well, I, I hope that's what my talk was about. Um, <laughs> I hope that, um, I think what, you know, I think the, I don't know, I, I think there's some Buddhist teachings about um, medicine and medicine can be poison and medicine can also be um, just the right thing. I don't mm -hmm. remember. I don't remember that koan off the top of my head. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I think that 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 applies to this as well. Um, I think there's such a thing as too much medicine. That's that would be my response, which can be toxic. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, I have a question. Hi, Kim. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks sure. for your talk. It's good to hear that you're um, a chaplain now. Um, my question's about suffering because it's, an, you know, and I understand the suffering that you're speaking of is, yeah, not helpful at all. Do you believe that there is suffering that's helpful? And I ask this because it's a question that I see in chaplaincy. I see people that you know, might want to be stoic in the hospital, not take the pain meds because they believe that the suffering is sort of, you know, if it's Buddhist, it could be a purification of karma or it could be penance if from a different tradition. So I'm wondering if you think, or how would you, how would you work with somebody like that who is telling you that their suffering is actually is good and it's transformative for them? Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw the ball. I have a lot of fellow chaplains on the call, and I would actually really love to hear what some of them think. I feel like I've done a lot of talking. Um, I see Dwayne. Dwayne, do you want to field this question? Are you there? I don't know if he's going to take it. All right. I guess, um, you know, as a chaplain, my response to that would be just to listen and just to allow that person to have their experience. Um, I, you know, part of our training as chaplains is not to encourage that line of thinking. So, but at the same time, um, not to tell someone else what to feel or what to, what experience they should be having. So I think I would hold it. I, I can't say, I think it's very individual and unique and I can't say that suffering has no value um, across the board. I don't think that's true. I think that yeah. suffering is wrapped up in justice for sure. Um, so there's value right there. Um, but I don't think I would have a ha, want to have an answer for anyone about that question. I think I would want to hold their experience. Um, yeah. That sounds good. Thank you. Yep. I think I saw Sarah and then Yana was what I witnessed and then Cheryl. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Good to see you. Hi. Um, I was going to start by saying that um, 
as a young person who has spent, um, I've spent like a year now working with a group of young people in, in Boston and we're trying to address violence in our work pretty consistently. And what I've learned is that before joining that space, um, I used to, a lot of my internal hatred would be centered around the fact that I felt like I, because I haven't suffered as much as somebody else that what I'm going through is not important. And I had to let that go because when you're working with people who have been through gun violence and I, and I have been in spaces where some of the people have been in direct contact with it, you know, I've realized you have to let that go because that's not going to be helpful. Um, and you have to take care of yourself in order to be consistently there for other people. And that's been really helpful for me to realize in that space. Um, and so I would say like my question based, I brought it up because I know you said that like, you realized that some of your problems weren't like as much of a big deal. And I would say like, I would argue a little with that because I realized like talking to some people who have been through a lot, like people have told me like, Sarah, like you do need to like value your own pain and like how it's affecting you and it's, it matters. And I guess my question would be like, have you reflected on like how maybe you've learned to either have you learned to like take care of yourself in that sort of space or, or like you're trying or like any actions maybe you're taking to like put yourself in that kind of space or I guess your thoughts on that. Sarah, I am in all of you every time we talk. I so appreciate what you just shared. Um, that, that, yeah, that's, that's incredibly important. And I'm, I'm glad that you lifted that up. Um, the importance of kind of not self-flagellating because the suffering of others is so, is so intense. And that definitely, I completely agree, does not, does not get us anywhere. Um, and in, in response to your question, absolutely. I, some of the people on this call have literally held me virtually in their hearts or sat with me as I, as I expressed my struggles around doing this work. Um, I've had, you know, I, our chaplains, we work together as a team to support one another so that we can support others. I couldn't do it without them. Um, we, we make space to share our own struggles. Um, so I definitely, definitely don't want to have folks walk away with the impression that someone's suffering, if it's by comparison, not as bad as it could possibly be, it's, it's insignificant. Um, that's not helpful. So I think that there's just a, a balance. Um, and I think that perspective, perspective can help. Um, but as you mentioned, perspective can also create some toxic thought patterns. So I think that with a lot of things in life, it's about finding a balance um, with how you hold your own suffering, maybe not leaning into it too much, but also not avoiding it. Thank you, Sarah.
we saw you next, Janos. And then Cheryl, after Janos. Hi, sorry. <clears throat> Thank you, Kim, for share here. Um, my name is Janos and I'm a psychotherapist in uh, one of the largest medical centers here in uh, Northern California in Oakland, where there is tremendous uh, gun violence and trauma as well. And I transferred from um, kind of the area maybe you would recognize here of East Coast what's called Silicon Valley, uh, pretty well off and affluent. And uh, so I quickly had to catch up to speed here in terms of my own therapeutic interventions for working with trauma. Um, and uh, that has been helpful. Um, nonetheless, I have to say this has probably been the worst year of my life, um, dealing with the level of trauma that presents to our clinic in a COVID unreal, virtual, um, untherapeutic uh, modality as possible. And particularly, it's, I see how it's affected so many youth um, and uh, the, tr the trauma here in their families. Uh, it just brought up so much pain. Uh, reminders here for me in listening to your talk uh, this morning of sort of what I deal with on a daily basis. Oh, and I'm grateful for my team uh, that for, and for my that has helped me to support through this time. Um, and I, my question is, or sorry, uh, my wanting to speak to, I think in my own practice, uh, my, my practice has often, you know, been based here in the Buddhist practice of compassion, that compassion names the whole of the law, as my teacher has reminded me. And then, you know, some of the work here of Dr. Kirsten Neff here of working, you know, with trauma through compassion and self-compassion. And there's this part of like secondary trauma, you know, we, we, we just absorb so much as healers of the trauma of our, of our uh, clients and then need to <laughs> seek healing ourselves. And so, you know, my practice is, is one way of sort of grounding that energy, but also of realizing, you know, that I am suffering as well and part and parcel of this craziness of this incredible, cannot understand this whole evil of rise of violence and, you know, and, and just the inequities and injustice that is, is rising and hopefully changing, but it's, 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 it, it dashes your hope. And so I guess I'm, my question is, is like, you know, what, what, what do you do for yourself? And what does the Buddha, you know, say of bringing compassion to ourselves uh, as we are dealing with our own, the suffering all around us? 
thank you for sharing. Um, I'm not sure that I can quote the Buddha, but I can say what I can do for myself. Um, maybe somebody else can jump in with some Buddhist teachings around self-love. Um, I, you know, it's, it, it's definitely a necessary part of working with trauma that you, you dedicate time to filling up your, your well. Um, sleep is a big thing that I do. I talk to my friends. Um, that's a huge thing. I hike, I'm in nature, I garden, I nurture life. Um, so that's what works for me. Um, and I know that it's different for everybody. And I, and I want to uplift that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly, it's, it's, it's as important as anything else because we, we have nothing to give if we don't give to ourselves. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, a good reminder of what I try to do. And just hearing it again um, is, it helps to, to ground, you know, the, the suffering and hold that in a compassionate way. Thank you. Sheriff Song, I think you are next. You can hear me. Cheryl, Slaw, did you have a question or comment? You are on mute. Um, I do. Great. So I was just going to tag on to Hokai-san's question um, that Kimberly, you said that you were, when someone is telling of their they're kind of their need to go through the suffering um, that you would just listen. And I was wondering in that listening, um, what questions might arise that you would ask that person to even deepen that listening? And then secondly to that, um, and it's the image of your, your rainbow scrolls uh, twirling and whirling around you. When I was, we were chanting the Enmejiku Kanengyo on uh, Thursday morning, as we do every Thursday morning in our well-being ceremony, I was holding a being um, very much in my heart and had such an image of, you know, the arms and the words and the, the, the chant itself just circling and holding that being. And, and your background is just delightfully reminding me of of that care that's in the world. So thank you, Kimberly. You're welcome. So to answer your question, um, I would wanna understand or talk through with the individual, you know, why they feel that way. Um, is, it, is it a theological? Is it a theological reason or is it something that they feel like they've done that they, they need to punish themselves for? Um, is there, is there forgiveness that's needed self-forgiveness? So I think I would just kind of dig and try and hear a little bit more about their story. Um, and 
you know, try to try to understand some of the deeper roots of of why they they feel like they they require suffering. Um, and you know where where they might want to where they might want that journey to lead them. Um, so I guess I would just I would just do a general inquiry. Um, I'd be curious about their their experience and why they feel why they why they're feeling that way. Thank you. Uh, Hello again. Um, Kim Son, when I was growing up in the, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, something that we were presented with fairly frequently that I, I uh, never understood as a child, at least, was that when we're experiencing suffering, we are to offer that up in, in gratitude and acknowledgement of the sufferings of Jesus in uh, redeeming humankind. Is that something you encounter, that point of view? And if so, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I've encountered that. Um, I, I particularly encountered it one time um, that really resonates with me. I had a patient that was going to be discharged into homelessness um, and who had a really severe heart condition um, and required some external medical devices that would be difficult to maintain on the streets. Um, and she was Baptist and it really actually was for her. Um, she, she had no family, no one in the world that cared about her um, or that was there for her or with her. Um, and for her, that oneness, that resonance with the experience of Jesus was an experience of not being alone. Um, and it brought her a lot of comfort. So together we, we sort of channeled that, um, that energy, that divine energy so that she could experience having something that was with her always. Um, and so in that, in that moment, it was valuable. I don't think that it's always valuable, certainly. Um, I think that's kind of the tricky part about all of this and kind of the point of the whole talk is that it's, you know, it's something that's mysterious and that requires us not to take anything at face value on either side of the fence. So, yeah, that's one experience. Thank you. And just a quick reminder that Isanji HSZC, Harford Street Zen Center, relies completely on your generous donations. Please visit our website or on Facebook to make a donation. We want to thank you, Kim, very much. Thank you for the schedule change. We had a little schedule juggling. I'm so glad we were able to get you here. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back again. I'll be in touch. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all my friends and family and colleagues and um, yeah, that came. Appreciate all of you. Kim-san, thank you for joining us. I hope you'll come again. Thank you.